invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. You may have seen the commercial recently for Ancestry.com. Are you familiar with it? You, you take a sample of your DNA, you send it off, and they send you the results back to tell you what kind of mutt exactly you are. And there, there's, one, there's a commercial where this one particular woman sends off her DNA, and the results come back, and she's sort of shocked, stunned, to find out she really is not who she thought she was ethnically. You know, we had our own Ancestry.com moment in the Gilbert home a couple of years ago, right before my, my mom passed away. She sent off her DNA and my dad's DNA to Ancestry.com eagerly awaiting the results because it was a well-accepted fact in the Gilbert household that our bodies, particularly on my mom's side, are just chock full of Native American blood, okay? And, and you take one look at my grandmother who's with the Lord now, and you would not doubt this. I mean, she had these high Cherokee Indian cheekbones. She had jet black hair until she passed away at the age of 98. And so there was little doubt what these results would, would, would say about us. So the results come back, I kid you not, I kid you not, open those envelopes, there is nary a drop of Native American blood flowing through our veins. There goes the plans to, to get the kids scholarships to college on, on the Native American scholarship. It was enough to evoke a brief identity crisis. We're not who we thought we were. Who, who are we? Where did we come from? Have we kind of been living this lie particularly when we've told people that we're related to Pocahontas, which we have said a number of times, every person in America is related to Pocahontas. Don't you know that? Well, this same sort of thing is happening in the first chapter of Matthew. Remember that Matthew is an apostle, tax collector. He's writing in, in the 60s, about 30 years after Jesus has ascended. And he's part of a Jewish Christian community, probably somewhere in Syria or thereabouts. But they're surrounded by other Jews who are not Christians and, and are looking sort of askance upon what these Jewish Christians are doing. They're, they're worshiping this person, Jesus, that they call Messiah. And not only do they call them Messiah, they actually call him King, King Jesus. And they're asking like some legitimate questions like, where is this King? Oh, please tell us. What, what gives you the right to call this man the, the, the son of David, king of the Jews? Where, where is his throne? Where is he reigning? And so in response to this, Matthew, in writing this gospel, starts of all places by composing a family tree. And we're going to look at this family tree together as, as part two of our Advent series, which we are calling Christmas is creed. And it's part of this series where we are reminding ourselves that Christmas is not just an annual celebration, although it is most certainly that. It is not less than that. But Christmas is not just an annual celebration. It is an annual affirmation. It is a confession. It is a proclamation to the world, to our children, to ourselves as a church family, about who Jesus Christ is. And can I just remind us, it's not a matter of whether or not we are confessing or affirming Jesus this season. We most certainly are. The question is, what are we affirming? What are we confessing? 
And Matthew wants to tell us something very, very important about what we're saying about Jesus this season. So I'm going to read Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I somehow made it through this genealogy last service and only slightly butchered about half the names, okay? So follow along with me. But as I do so, remember, these names represent people, lives, stories, redemptive acts of grace, great sin. Think about this as we read this, and then we're going to talk about what it means for us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abisha. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And the Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jehoshaphat, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoshaphat was the father of Shiltil, and Shiltil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray that God will open our eyes and hearts to his word. Lord, show us that this is much more than about a family tree or a genealogy, although it's all about that. But it's really a testimony to your grace. It's a testimony to the coming king who came to judge, but first had to judge our sins on the cross. So, Lord, give us insight, give us wisdom into this text. Lord, apply its truth to our hearts. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Two, two, two points, two themes that arise from this text are pretty straightforward. First of all, we're going to talk about the pedigree of perfection that we find here. The pedigree of perfection and then the provision of grace. The provision of grace. All right, pedigree of perfection. It's almost the new year. Many of you will endeavor to read the Bible in a year, but only a few of you, or shall I say of us, okay, of us will succeed, right? Because what happens? 
Well, we get into Genesis and we get into Numbers and we run into these genealogies and we get stuck because it seems so mundane and monotonous and the Jezebites and the Hittites and the Moabites and the Mosquitoites. It is just unbelievably difficult for us to, to, to connect with this because it's so foreign to us in our particular social context. But remember, this was a huge deal. Genealogies were a big deal to the people of Israel. Recall in the Old Testament that when exiles were returning from Babylon to Jerusalem, one of the very first things Nehemiah did was what? Put together the old family tree, recorded a census of everyone who was coming back and where they were coming from, which was absolutely crucial because in Israel, where you lived was dependent upon what tribe you were a part of, which of the 12 tribes. And so it wouldn't do just to say, do a land rush. Okay, everybody, run, you know, go stake your claim. No, no, no. The tribe of ben, uh, Dan had to go here, and the tribe of Benjamin there. And, and so you had to be able to trace your family lineage. It also was important as related to role. Remember in, in is, ancient Israel, not every tribe had the same sort of role um, or job or ministry or responsibility before the Lord as another tribe. So, for example, the, the tribe of Levi, only pre, priests could only come from the tribe of Levi. And when anyone tried to impersonate a, a, a priest who wasn't from the tribe, dastardly things happened. And so, as you can see, genealogies, history, family, lineage, those, these were all really big deal because you had to be able to prove who you are. When we were recently traveling in Israel, the Four Oaks Israel group, one of the number one questions you guys have asked me um, is not about the spiritual impact of the trip, but did you feel safe? Okay, that, that was, that's kind of like number one question. And as we know, there's a lot of unrest even right now over in Israel. But one of the things that, that I was struck by is when we were returning to go back to the United States, going through customs in Tel Aviv, we had a little party of our, our, our group there, and they divided our group up, and they took Steve Curio um, off to one side, and they took me to the other. They were going to torture Steve. But anyway, no, they, they did not do that. But what they did is they, 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 they did have a very straight, friendly interrogation with each of us to find out who we were. They asked us a whole number of questions, where we were going, what we were doing, where we were traveling, who did we see, you know, all those sorts of things. And I found out that they then compared those stories, put them together to make sure we were who we said we were. They were establishing, so to speak, our bona fides. Now, if you kind of wrap your mind around that, you can understand what Matthew is doing here. He is establishing Jesus's bona fides to be the rightful claim to the heir of the throne of David. If you're a, you know, when, when, when Gentile Christians came to place their faith in Christ in the New Testament, this whole King of David thing wasn't a, as prominent a theme because they didn't have that sort of background. They weren't looking for a coming king. They were, they, they, they were looking for a philosophy or a wisdom or those sorts of things. But the Jews, make no mistake, they were, they were waiting for Messiah who they believed was going to be descended from David, King David, the tribe of Judah. You can't throw a rock and not hit a new an Old Testament passage that talks about this. 
that prophesies, that foretells, that says that when, that when the Messiah comes, he will be in the line, the lineage of David. And that's why Matthew, he does not begin his, his genealogy with Adam. He, he's not concerned genetically. He's concerned with Jesus's royal bona fides. See, he, he, he starts with the son of David. And everything that Matthew does in this genealogy is to show Jesus's relationship to the most important man in the history of Israel, and that was King David. Even the way Matthew structures this passage, you'll, you'll notice he mentions down in verse 17, so the, the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to Babylon 14, and from, from the deportation to, to Christ were 14. What, 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 what's the significance of 14? Now, I don't mean to go all Da Vinci Code on you up here, okay? But, but one of the theories is that numbers were important in Old Testament literature and that the, the, the numeric value of David's name in Hebrew equaled 14. It's, it's again, Matthew's way of saying even the way that, that God has structured human history was meant to find fulfillment in this person, Jesus Christ, who would take on David's throne. Now, something you need to understand about this genealogy that's different than our genealogies, our genealogies are almost entirely genetic. What's our connection by blood to those that have come before us that will go after us? That's not the way Matthew structures this genealogy. He's not, he's not really considered, um, concerned mostly with the genetic line. He's concerned with Jesus' royal pedigree. He's, he's, he's concerned with the royal line. We don't have time to do this, but if you were to study this passage, this genealogy in detail, you would realize that not every person is genetically um, related to the other, okay? Or, 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 or if they are, it's very, very distant. There's other places, for example, Rahab and Boaz, Rahab the father of Boaz, nowhere else in Scripture does it tell us that. It seems that what Matthew is doing is he's collapsing these categories and he's, he's organizing them for a particular purpose. And he, he seems to want to be telling us that it's God who's preserving this royal line. It's God's faithfulness. It's not about man's faithfulness to genetically pass on the DNA of the Messiah. But because if that's the case, we are messed up. Okay, you can do a case study, character study on any number of these people in this, this genealogy and realize that. But Matthew is trying to emphasize that fundamentally Jesus has come about through this royal line, through the faithfulness and promises of God despite human failure. Okay, that's why, go back to verse 1, Jesus, the first person that is mentioned in accordance with Jesus, after David is whom? Abraham. Now, isn't that interesting? Abraham. What promise did God give Abraham? He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through your seed. I'm going to raise up a king. I'm going to raise up a Messiah through your seed. This will be the child of promise. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, it's not the physical children of Abraham who are his children, 
Remember the whole Father Abraham, many sons? Okay, that's going to be our communion response song today. It's going to be awesome. Josh, you ready? Okay, give it. Okay. No, 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 no. It's the children of promise. It's the children of, of faith. It's not those who are the physical descendants of the, that belong to Abraham. It's those who are the promises by faith. It's Matthew's way of telling us this, this coming of the Messiah. It's all through the faithfulness of God. It's all through the sovereign care of God, despite and through even man's incredible failure. Now, now how does this work? How, does, how do we become the... Because I don't, I don't see your name in this lineage. You don't see mine. How is it that we get to participate in this royal lineage, this kingship of Jesus? Look down at verse 16. The wording is pretty interesting here because all through it, it notes that Eliezer is the father of Mathan and Mathan the father of Jacob and so on. Until we get to Joseph. It does not say Joseph was the father of Jesus. Now, what does it say? Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. This idea of born of Mary, but not from Mary, not from Joseph, signals that this was a unique king. This was a king entirely different than merely human kings that we see as a part of this lineage. This was nothing less than a holy embryo, not contaminated by Joseph's DNA, not contaminated okay, by Mary's DNA, but this is a holy embryo conceived how? By the Holy Spirit, planted in Mary's womb, of whom Joseph was married to. This is Matthew's way of saying, this is a sinless king. This is a king like no other king. This is, this is a king without sin. This is a king who's absolutely a man, but he is absolutely 100% God. He, in fact, is a sinless man. Now, why is this important? Remember, Paul talks about in Romans 5, the first Adam, Adam in the garden. Adam was created without sin, but he had the capacity to sin or not sin. But Adam, in a sense, was our representative. He was our elected official, so to speak. And he was to act on our behalf. And God said, go be fruitful, be multiply, obey, enjoy my worship, enjoy my fellowship. Just don't eat from this tree. And Adam, acting as our representative, our federal head, failed miserably. And you might be saying, well, that kind of stinks, okay? Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks for playing, okay? So, so, so that, that's what happened with the first Adam. But guess what? Matthew is pointing us toward this idea that Jesus is the second Adam. That Jesus was born sinless with the capacity to obey or not. But as our representative, Jesus obeyed perfectly on our behalf. Which means that his righteousness is now ours through faith. That even just as we had nothing to do with the sin of the first Adam that put us into this place. Okay, and that's, why, that, that, that's kind of what we call original sin. That we inherit from Adam. We are born into sin. You may say, well, that's not fair, Pastor Paul. 
But see, that's the beauty of the gospel. Because when Jesus came and obeyed as the second Adam, we had nothing to do with his righteousness. But his righteousness was counted as ours. And this is Matthew's way of saying, folks, this is this king that's come. He has this pedigree of perfection to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He came to save, and that is good news. Now, let, let me say something here very unadvent-like, okay? We're supposed to be candles and smells and bells and all those sorts of things. Let me say something very unadvent-like. The coming of the king, though, as wonderful as it is, may or may not be good news to you. And let me say it again. Let me say it a different way. Just because the king has come and that's good news, is it good news for you? Let me, let me kind of explain a little bit. 1987, I was a freshman at University of Tennessee. I was not a Christian. I decided to go through Rush. I wanted to be a part of a, a fraternity. And there was a particular fraternity that I wanted to be a part of very, very badly. And so I was that little skinny freshman who would show up right when the doors opened um, at 8, and I'd be the last guy to leave at 11. I just knew, my friend and I just knew that this was going um, to be the place where we landed. This is going to, they, they were, the brothers were going to extend us a pledge. It's going to be um, where we spent our college years. And, and I remember the brothers telling us, they said, you know, guys, come back at 3 p.m. on Friday, and that's where we're going to hand out the bids. That's when people will be getting the good news. And so sure enough, we showed up at 3 o'clock. They had a whole house full of, of pledges and different folks. And, and what they would do is, is they, would, they would get the pledges one by one, and they would take them upstairs and do whatever fraternity guys do upstairs with pledges. Anyway, then they would send them down the stairs, and the whole house would, would do this cheer in unison to sort of welcome this pledge into the new brotherhood. And it was exciting, and it was fun, and it was contagious, and there was a big party going on, and there was good news everywhere. Well, the president of the, of the fraternity came, put his arm around my friend and I, walked us out back, and we're like, yes, yes, this is going to be the time where we get to participate in the good news. Then he says, fellas, anytime it starts with fellas, you know that's not a good, not a good sign. Fellas, we took a, bit, we took a vote last night, not, not, n- number two, not good. And, and, we'll, and we'll vote again tonight, but, you know, you, know, you guys just didn't make it in this time. And, and there's still a chance, but don't call us, we'll call you. I, he literally, he literally say that, said that. And I just remember my friend and I walking back to our dorm, hearing the cheers of the whole fraternity house going on in the, in the background, realizing we did not get our bid. In other words, there was good news all around, but it wasn't for us. See, at Christmas time, good news is in the air. We proclaim, and Matthew's proclaiming, the king has come. The sinless one has come to, to, to save his people from their sins. The king is coming, and, and, and if this idea of Jesus' king doesn't, doesn't sit well with you, remember, without a king, nothing can be set right. No justice can be exercised. Having a national debate over sexual assault and abuse and 
Those wrongs can never be corrected apart from a king, a judge who comes to set things the way they ought to be. Yet, that's very, very bad news if, in fact, you are in rebellion against this coming king. John Piper puts it this way. The king has come, but that's not good news until we hear that the king has come to die for his rebellious subjects. See, the reality is that membership in God's family does not come genetically. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how long you've been a member of the church or how many times you've been baptized, sprinkled, dunkled, poured, and all that over and over again. It doesn't matter what your Sunday school attendance record is your family's background, how long they have been pillars in the church. You know, we're oftentimes saying things like the family of God here at Four Oaks, and I think that's legitimate. But you can be a lifetime member of this church and not be a part of the family of God. The family of God, that doesn't come automatically. It only comes through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ who came through a pedigree of perfection to live the life and die the death you and I can never do on our own. So why did he do that? Second point, for provision of grace. And and, and here, I want to spend our last few minutes. I just want you to see the grace of God in this genealogy. You know, typically when we have family secrets, When we have shameful, dirty things in our past, if relatives have done scandalous things, what do we want to typically do with that information? We want to hide it, right? (laughs) We want to keep that crazy uncle locked away in the basement. Thank you very much. You've heard me share the story before when when, when I was in seminary going through my master's program in, in marriage and family therapy. We had to do a genogram, which is basically a family history not of, not, of, not of pedigree and genealogy, but of all the dysfunctional relationships that have tied us together over our time, right? So it's, it's so-and-so was married to whom, and they had a terrible marriage, and they divorced, and this person was an alcoholic, and this, you know. And it's interesting, people will put things down on a sheet of paper they'll never say to your face. Have you, have you noticed this? Okay. Sometimes it's easier to send an email, than it is to say something face-to-face. It's kind of the, the electronic buffer, so to speak. And people who would, who would never sh- who'd share nary a word about our family history wrote the most amazing, amazing things down on these, on these questionnaires, all about family secrets and suicides and alcoholism and, and all those things. And I just remember finishing that genogram and thinking, I want to hide this as quickly as possible, okay? This is never going to see the light of day. And if, honey, if I get died walking home from, from church today, it's in the cabinet. Up. Anyway, anyway you, you get what I'm saying, right? It's, it's not to break out at Christmas dinner, okay, and, and have a little discussion starter about our dysfunction. Guys, let me just say this. That's not, what Ma- that's not the tack Matthew takes, Matthew, the dysfunction that's represented, the, 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 the ill-gotten behavior that's represented in, in this genealogy, we could, spend, we could spend weeks unpacking it. 
just even from Abraham, who gave up his wife Sarah twice to be for men to have their sexual way with her because he didn't want to be harmed himself, said, lied and said that this was his sister. We have Jacob, which in the Hebrew means what? Deceiver. Okay, hello, my child's name is Deceiver. Okay. We could go on and on about the evil kings and Manasseh and, and otherwise. And just the most scandal. I mean, any Jew reading this would just have laughed as they were reading this. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember him. He killed him and he slept with her and, you know, all those sorts of things. But probably, I think, one of the most scandalous aspects of this genealogy, this family tree, is the inclusion of what I call the four women of the apocalypse, okay? And I just want to talk about them for a second. Because I want you to, to, to see what the pedigree of perfection that Jesus, King Jesus, came and lived and died for us, what it did for these women, and what it can do for you. Now, the fact that women are even mentioned in a genealogy is just, I mean, that's shocking in itself. But the fact that they would highlight the, this the, the, the sort of the dastardly deeds. I mean, think about Tamar for a second. You know who Tamar was? She, her father-in-law was Judah. And Judah would not allow her to... See, Tamar's husband died, and Judah would not allow her, as he should have been called by God according to Levitical law, he did not allow her to marry one of his sons in order to propagate the family line. And so she sort of took matters into her own hands, and she impersonated a prostitute and seduced Judah, her father-in-law, by which she had twins. And those twins, what do we know about them? Well, they're found right here in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab, I mean, she was a pagan living in Jericho. She was a prostitute. And I don't mean like once-in-a-while prostitute, I'm talking about what do you do for a living? I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a pastor. I'm a prostitute, okay? She was a, she was a full-blown professional prostitute. And why did the spies choose her to hide with? Because they knew that no one would look there, right? No one wanted to go where Rahab was. Ruth. Ruth's a Moabite. The only people that the Israelites hated worse than Samaritans were the Moabites. Because the Moabites, where, where were they descended from? Well, there was Lot, remember Lot, Abraham's nephew, and had two daughters who also had no sons. And they seduced their father one night, consecutive nights, in order to perpetuate the family lineage. And so Moabites were those who were a part of this incestuous relationship, and the Jews hated them. But in Ruth, lest we think anything else, she was a Moabite. The wife of Uriah, it's so funny, it's like Matthew doesn't dare mention her name, right? The wife of Uriah, oh no. We know her as Bathsheba, right? The unfaithful two-timer. Her husband's out fighting. She sleeps with David. She's She's covered in shame and scandals, responsible for taking down the grandest man in the history of the nation of Israel. Boy, Matthew sure picked four, didn't he? He sure picked four. But why these women? 
Because surely there's a better representation of the lineage than that, right? Of Jesus. What about Hannah? What about Deborah? What about Sarah? I think Matthew does this because he wants to show us two aspects of the grace of God that God pours out on not only these women, but any who come to him in faith. And the first is this. This genealogy of the life of these women shows us God's scandalous grace. Here's the fact. God can save anyone, anywhere, anytime. The kingdom of God is open to all through faith. Despite your ethnicity, despite your background, despite your history, despite your particular lineage that you might be ashamed of, the kingdom of God is open to everyone. See, one of the things that needs to happen this morning is that all of us need to get reconnected to the scandal of God's grace. See, this isn't the, the, the lineage of someone else and God's scandalous grace for them. This is our lineage. And the scandal of God's grace is for you. The scandal of God's grace is for me. And if you don't connect those things to your own heart, may I just pastorally gently exhort you and ask you, do you really understand the gospel? That that the story of these four women are not their story, those people's stories. They're our stories. They're you. They're me. God's grace is scandalous. But the second aspect of God's grace that I want us to see here is that God's grace is redemptive. See, there's some of you who are saying, you know, Pastor Paul, okay, maybe I can wrap my mind around this idea that God's grace is scandalous, that God's grace could even save me, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what a shamble I've made in my life where my choices have put us, how I've hurt myself, my spouse, my children, my roommates, my parents, what have you. There's just a real note of hope. I'm just greatly encouraged by this genealogy of God's redemptive grace. And here's what I mean. With all four of these women, he didn't just merely use what they did for his grace and his glory. But in fact, he redeemed them. He saved them. He poured his grace out upon them. Tamar. Tamar is a desperate woman. God had made a promise that he was going to continue the line to the Messiah through whom? Judah. And we can't say the ends justify the means But we do know that Tamar, that God's grace to redeem her brokenness, to redeem the brokenness of this family, to which Jesus can trace his own lineage. God redeemed Tamar. God redeemed Ruth. She was a Moabite tied to a crummy, unfaithful family. She doesn't know God, and God brings a mother-in-law into her life called Bitter. Hello, bitter. Okay, Naomi. And what does she do? She walks in faithfulness. 
she goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem, to the land of Israel. And God uses her, redeems her, saves her. Rahab the prostitute, she's one we find actually in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Because she worked to help the spies. And she spent the rest of her days with, with the people of Israel as part of them. But here's another way to think about this for a second. I don't think it was just that Rahab was sent to the spies. I think it was the spies also sent to Rahab. She's just a destitute prostitute. And God sends these two spies. And now we're reading about her 2,000 years later because she is a part of the lineage of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Finally, Bathsheba, you're like, well, surely, surely there's no redemption to be found here. You know, I think we ought to have a little sympathy for Bathsheba. You know, when the king beckons, you answer. When he says, yes, you don't say no. But the most amazing thing to me about Bathsheba is that she stayed and remained faithful to a king who had even killed her husband. And God, I believe, honored her, redeemed her, by which she bore Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived. See, this genealogy is full of humanity's sin. And I think the great irony, the great amazing thing about this, as we draw this to a close, is to understand that God brings forth his son from the very people his son was sent to die for. See, that's the gospel story. That's God's scandalous, redemptive grace. A perfect Savior with perfect pedigree sent for a faithless people, a people who were in rebellion against him in order that they would find grace and mercy in their time of need. See, I think that there's another reason that Matthew breaks this down into three eras of 14 generations. You study the, the, the history of the nation of Israel, you know that those are three sets of 14 generations that are full of desperate struggle and darkness. Where at any moment it appears that the gospel has been eclipsed, that the Messiah, the Son of God, that, that most certainly God's purposes are thwarted. But Matthew reminds us, no, no, no. God's grace is greater. And as these people waited, he preserved his remnant. That he is not, he never forgot his people. And for Oaks, he hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten me. God is faithful, and we wait on him in hope this season, knowing that one day he will come back for his own and that we will taste and see face to face that the Lord is good. Where is your hope? this Advent season. I call you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him. You will be saved. Let's pray.